Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. Thank you for letting me come to uh, Refuge tonight. My name is Chris, and I am the East Bay guy. So that's how I introduce myself a lot of times. Um, I serve at the East Bay campus down south in Gibsonton and Riverview and that area. And uh, we're having a blast down there. And uh, just to introduce myself to some of you. Some of you know me. Some of you have met me before. But I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Roll Tide. Sorry. I got to go ahead and get that out of the way. But uh, I am... uh, have been in Bell Shoals at the East Bay campus for about two years now and have been serving down there. One year of that was doing the video satellite thing. And then, as we all know, some things have changed and we've been doing live preaching. And God has actually led us in our campus, in our ministry down there, to actually begin to pursue uh, a daughter church uh, plant of Bell Shoals. So that is the direction of the East Bay campus. We uh, have a goal in place around June, July, August of 2010 to actually be our own church, which is pretty exciting. So um, God is doing some great things down there. And I just want to say thanks to Matt. I've, I've been able to, to been, be Matt's friend for the past year or so as I've gotten to know him and just have enjoyed his partnership and praying together and, and just dreaming about ministry and, and all kinds of different things. So I thank Matt for that. I thank you. Some of you guys have come down to help us uh, build playground or some of you have helped us come and keep our children as our children's ministry is growing like crazy. Um, and, and I just want to thank you guys for coming down there to invest in our campus if you've done that. And also to give a shameless plug that if you haven't done so, shame on you and you need to do that. All right, You would enjoy to do that, I promise you. So come down there and visit us at some point. And the last thing that I want to thank Matt for is giving me the impossible task while he's out of town talking about the Davidic Covenant which is where we're going to be tonight. So if you brought your Bible, I want to ask you to open up with me. We're going to start off in 1 Samuel 16. And uh, as we get going, we're going, to, we're going to go through a lot of different passages of Scripture tonight as we kind of bounce around. So 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16. And uh, that's where we're going to land. We're going to go to 2 Samuel. We're going to flash back and, and move forward into Matthew and Luke in a little bit too as we get going with the Davidic Covenant. But, you know, I know that this series is an amazing series. And I'm excited to be a part of it and to be able to talk to you about the Davidic Covenant tonight. But I want you to know that, man, I have really been struggling this week as I've prepared this, this talk because Matt's got to talk about several things in this Pursuit series, right? Some of you, uh, what, what has he talked about that, that's been memorable for you in this series? What character, what Bible character, what Bible patriarch, maybe? Noah. How many pages in the Bible does Noah take? Not very many, right? All right, what's another guy that, that he's talked about? Moses. How many pages in the Bible does, does the person of Moses take up? A, a, a little bit more than, Mo, than, than Noah, right? Uh, does he talk to, about Abraham, right? He talked about Abraham, Abraham again. A lot of, a lot of story, a lot of Hebrews in the New Testament. But when you get to this guy, David, thanks, Matt. I mean, the whole Bible is, is just David and Jesus. I mean, all over the place, right? Where do you start? Where do you dive in? He picked a good week to give me this topic. So I just want you to know this is thick. This is heavy. This is, 
how, how do you go through the Old Testament in seven weeks? Uh, and we're going to try to do that uh, and, and encapsulate the life of David and his covenant tonight. Uh, by way of preface, my campus, we've been walking through the book of Joshua. Uh, Joshua is, is the sixth book of the Old Testament for, the, for you new Bible students. But we've been in Joshua for six months. And we've just been picking it apart one chapter at a time. And it's been an amazing journey. So for me to stand up here, after being just immersed in the book of Joshua and living in the Old Testament for six months, to come to this guy named David and try to talk to you about him in, in about 30 to 40 minutes is, is going to be a challenge. So if you need to sneak back to the prayer room and pray for me, it's not going to offend me at all. But uh, we're going to have a, have, have a, a lot of insight to this guy, David. Um, and uh, some of you guys, what comes to your mind when you think about David might be the cage match with he and Goliath. And the, the whole deal about him standing in one, uh, on one mountainside and, and Goliath standing in the, on the other and fee-fi-fo-fum, I am Goliath, here I come. All that kind of stuff going on, all right? That might come to your mind when you think about Goliath. You might think about, you know, David's sin and his mess up and his adultery with Bathsheba uh, when he was hanging out on the rooftop that day. Some of you guys might think about, oh yeah, he's the guy that wrote a lot of those psalms. But what I want you to walk away with tonight is, is just an amazing truth that when you look at the life of David, and this covenant that we're going to see here in just a couple of minutes, you're going to see a foreshadowing of, of our Savior and how God promises His people, especially David in his line, that if they commit to walk before Him, to walk with God, to love God, to, to serve faithfully, what you're going to see is God says, I am going to establish your line forever. And then you fast forward to the next series you guys are going to, which is the incarnation. And you're going to see David's line passionately pursuing God's people. So the first thing I want to start off with tonight is, is just, it, it, it's really just kind of a summary statement maybe of where you've been. And, and the statement goes like this. The entire text of Scripture is revealing a God who takes pleasure in passionately Pursuing people. You say that again. The entire text of Scripture is revealing a God who takes pleasure in passionately pursuing people. Now, down at East Bay, I, I can only speak from my context, we are full of brand new people to church. And God is being so faithful to us, and He's bringing people who have never set foot in a church before, or maybe who have been burned in church, and, and they don't want anything to do with church, but they're coming back because something is stirring their hearts to come forward, and they've got this warped opinion of God. And if you read the text of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the series that you find yourself in is the college ministry here at Bell Shoals. You are finding yourself going through a series that is teaching such biblical truth that saying God is a God who pursues His people with reckless passion. Now, why do I say it like that? I want you to flash back to Genesis chapter 3. I think I've got these on the screen, guys. But Genesis chapter 3, remember this. You might have touched on this. Genesis chapter 3, the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, obviously, heard the sound of the Lord in the garden. 
in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What they do? They heard the Lord God because they did what? Yeah, they ate of the apple. Both of them. Right? Who led the charge there, guys? Yeah, I didn't think you'd fall for that one. But uh, yeah, they, they took the apple, they ate it, and then they went and hid. Why did they go hide? Because they were shameful. And what did they look like at this point? Yeah, I thought you might say it with a little bit more passion than that. This is good. This is Scripture, right? They were naked. Let's get it out there, all right? They took a bite of the apple, they ate it, and they were shameful, and they were naked, and they went and hid behind some fig leaves, all right? That's, that's just what they did. Watch God pursue. The Lord God made. In my Bible, I've got that underlined right there. The Lord God made garments for Adam and his wife and God clothed them. Do you see the pursuit of God there? The beginning pages of the Bible. God goes and He actually is the one who makes these garments. What an amazing truth. Again, that's Genesis 3. Look at Genesis uh, chapter 6. I think you guys have already talked about this one. So the Lord God said to Noah, I will wipe mankind whom I created from the face of the earth. Now, why was that so? Mankind was just extremely wicked at this point. Extremely wicked. And God did not find many people at all at this point in history who are walking with Him and pursuing holiness and loving God passionately. So He looks out and He says, I am just going to wipe out mankind from the face of the earth. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Remember, I listened to the podcast a couple weeks ago. Noah did absolutely nothing to be known as a righteous individual at this point in time. It was by God's grace that he said, Noah, I'm choosing you. And through you, I am going to pursue mankind whom I love. And I am going to give you a second chance. And by my grace and by my mercy, I'm picking you out, Noah. Go build a boat. Take your family and take the animals, and I'm going to restart it all. So that's Genesis 3. That's Genesis 6. Look at Genesis... uh, I think I put Genesis 12 up here. Uh, The Lord God had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. Again, this is God going to who? God going to Abram. And God saying to Abram, I am pursuing you, Abram. Abram, you're not pursuing me at this point. I am pursuing you, and I have a plan for your life, and I have a plan for your family. And actually that plan, if you look at Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, it talks about God blessing the ends of the earth, all the peoples on earth, through this plan. It's an amazing thing as you and I get to see God. This is just the first chapter in the Bible, and this is just three pertinent examples right here of how God continues to pursue His people. I think i got one more up here, and it's in Exodus chapter 3. This is Moses. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. In other words, I've seen what my people are going through. I'm not this distant God who sets the world in motion and steps back and says, you guys figure it out. 
No, that's not the kind of God that we have. Amen? We have the kind of God who pursues us. And how does He pursue Moses? Moses, I have seen what you're going through. And now, I'm pursuing you. And I'm pursuing my people. And I'm going to use you to go. And I'm going to free my people through you. Again, if you've seen the, uh, the uh, Prince of Egypt, you got that, that thing in your brain. I have a six-year-old, and I have that movie memorized. So, there you go. That's the image that comes to my mind. That's just in the first two chapters of the Bible. We could continue going out to... What's the third chapter in the or third book of the Bible? Las Vegas. Leviticus. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Leviticus. Again, what you're seeing in Leviticus, you're seeing God pursuing His people by saying, I want you to be holy. This is how you be holy. And He's pursuing them and He's, and he's giving them instruction. What's the fourth book of the Bible? Numbers. You see a bunch of numbers and numbers. What's the fifth book? Deuteronomy. Man, you're doing pretty good tonight. Some of you guys were in Bible drill when you grew up, right? Uh, Deuteronomy. You're seeing God pursue His people when they said no to Him. They said, no, God, we are not going to go over and inherit this land that you have for us. And God says, fine, you're all going to die. You're not going to see the promised land. But... I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to pursue you. And I'm going to begin to lead you and teach you during this time. Again, you see it all throughout the pages of the Bible. We're going to hit now 1 Samuel chapter 16. So read this with me, if you will. And this is going to introduce us to this person of David and lead us to the Davidic covenant where we're going to see ultimately Christ pursuing His people, and we're going to realize that in the person of Jesus at the end of this deal. So, here we go. 1 Samuel 16. That was a long introduction. Sorry about that. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen, or some of your Bibles might say, I have provided for myself. I have chosen one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about this and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint the one for me that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord uh, said, And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. 
And Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. And Samuel said, Send for him, we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord says, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now this is by way, by, by way of an introduction, basically, of what's going on right here with David. We're introduced to this person of David, this shepherd boy who's out in the field, this, this forgotten guy who is ultimately going to be king and who ultimately Christ's lineage is going to date back all the way to this forgotten guy. Isn't that incredible? Our Savior is, is coming from this forgotten guy. The, I got basically three statements that I want you to, to remember and take away tonight, and hopefully uh, they're going to they're gonna speak to your heart a little bit. Here, here's the deal. In light of pursuit, God's pursuit of man is stronger than man's pride towards God. Let me say that again. Man's pers- God's pursuit of man is stronger than man's pride towards God. Now, what do you mean by that, Chris? What are you talking about in this situation? Look at verse 1 of, of this First Samuel 16 passage. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Now, that's a pretty interesting statement right there. Get the picture in your mind here, alright? Samuel is, is the leader of Israel at this point in time, alright? He's on his face, mourning because of Saul. He's on his face mourning because God has rejected Saul as king. What's that all about? He's on his face grieving, hurting, crying out to God, regretful, going through just a rough time because of what God has done and and just because of, of, of... the despair that this nation of Israel is under. Let me show you something. Look back at chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. 1 Samuel uh, 15, 3. God's speaking right here to Saul through Samuel, and God says, Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men... And women, children, and infants, cattle, and sheep, camels, and donkeys. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't really like reading that verse in the Bible. I have an eight-week-old daughter named Charlie. When I read a text like that, and it's pickled all the way throughout the book of Joshua. You'll just see God saying, kill them all. Wipe them out. And sometimes we don't like that language, do we? Babies? Innocent babies? 
wipe them out. Why, why would God say something like that? And it's when we start to have a problem like this, and I'm preaching to myself here, when we start to have a problem with, with God saying, wipe all these Amalekites out, we indict ourselves. How do we indict ourselves? It shows how tolerant we are as a people of sin. And these Amalekites were bad people. Wicked. No good in them. And God says, the wages of sin is death. Saul, wipe them out. Do we have any PETA fans in here tonight? Before I go into my next sentence, I want to know before I get... Peter. No, I like Peter Republic though. It's really good. Uh, P E T A. Okay, you with me? All right. Sorry. Did I make you hungry? Because my wife and I really like that place. The reason why I say that is because listen to what else God said to Saul: cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Saul, you're the king at this point. Wipe them out. So Saul summoned the men and he mustered them at Tidiam, 200,000 foot soldiers with the 10,000 men from Judah. And Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. And then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Now watch this. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and uh, alive, and all his people... He totally destroyed with the sword. Now watch this. Come in here real close. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These were these they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Basically, what did, what did Saul do wrong? God said, kill them all. What did Saul do? Saul said, God, I'll kill everything that's not of benefit to me. But if there's something that's of benefit to me, I'm going to let it benefit me. Don't we kind of do that in our lives at times? God, listen, I'm going to do everything you say except this deal right here because, man, if I do this or if I don't, if, if I just hang out there or I don't make that decision, I could really get ahead here. You know, if, if I don't do that, then God, man, do you see the danger here? Do you see the pride of man at this point? Now watch verse 15. I'm sorry, watch verse 9. 
These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Watch this in verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and he has not carried out my instructions. Do you see the pride of man there? Now remember our point. God's pursuit of man is stronger than man's pride towards God. That wasn't the first time that Saul said no to God. That wasn't the first time that Saul said, God, I, I know what you're saying, but basically, I'm just not going to do it. You can go back one more, uh, two more chapters to chapter 13. And I'm giving you some background so that we're going to be able to see the Davidic covenant in its fullness here. Uh, chapter 13, verse 5. First uh, Samuel 13, 5. It's, it's kind of story number two of how Saul just basically said, God, I know what you said, but I just, I got to do what I got to do, God. 1 Samuel 13.5 The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as sand on the seashore. And they went up and camped at Michmash east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among rocks and in pits and cisterns. And some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. But Saul remained at Gilgal with all of his troops, and they were quaking with fear. So get this picture in your brain. Saul is going to war. He's the king. He's the king right before David. And Saul finds himself in a battle. And, it's, and he's up against so many people that the Bible says that this battle, he is up against people and forces that are as numerous as sand on the seashore. And they're freaking out. And they're hiding in caves and, and everywhere that they can find a place to hide because they're freaking out. The enemy is too large. And Saul is one of those people who's hiding and he's just extremely fearful because of the oncoming threat. And that's the picture here. And in verse 8 it says, He waited seven days... Saul waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. And just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel said, You acted foolishly. You have not kept the command that the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established, listen to this, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Now that's going to be important when we get to the Davidic covenant in just a second. This is the second time Paul, uh, Saul, Saul, Paul, all right. This is the second time Saul has said to God, I got people coming at me, man. 
You told me to wait, not to offer the sacrifice, to wait on Samuel to offer the sacrifice, God. You told me to wait, but guess what? I've got this onslaught coming towards me. I'm going to die. My men are scattering. I'm the king. They're looking at me for leadership. I've got to make a decision. It looks like we're doomed. I've got to move forward. Action has to be done. Bring me the sacrifice. I'm going to offer the sacrifice. I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to trust myself. Here's the sacrifice. Set it on fire. Boom. Samuel shows up. What have you done, Saul? You're the key. You're an idiot. It says he acted foolishly. That's Central Alabama translation. You're an idiot. You didn't trust God. You trusted yourself. You thought you had to take matters into your own hands, Saul. Why did you do that? Why do you just trust the Lord? You're the king. If you would have trusted the Lord, your kingdom would have been established what? Forever. Bam, number two. Now, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. I know we're talking about David ultimately, but we're talking about his predecessor here. I'm going to take you to one more place. Back up to chapter 8. This is huge. And this kind of spells it all out. First Samuel 8, this is why Saul came to kingship. This is why David came to kingship. This is why the Davidic covenant exists. Look at chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. Chapter 1, I mean chapter 8 verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. His sons were not good people. The first, the, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Now listen to this. This is this is this is major Bible theology here. So the elder, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to Samuel, "You're old." Kind of find it kind of kind of funny that the elders go to Samuel and say you're old. That's just kind of something I chuckle at. You're old, and your sons—they're not good people. They're not walking in your way, and uh, we got to do something about that. So he says, "Now appoint us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have." But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not that they have, it is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt into this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. It wasn't God. And it wasn't God's plan to set up kingship in Israel. Do you see that in the text? Basically, at this point in time, the people of God are saying, listen, our future is in danger. We need a king. We need a king that we can that we can see with our eyes. We need a king that we can we can predict. We need a king that we can rally around and get excited about. 
and God's sitting there going, Hello? Was me splitting the Jordan River in half not enough? Was me leading you through the promised land not enough? Was me overcoming all kinds of kings and subduing all kinds of nations not enough? And basically the elders of Israel are like, No, God, that's not enough. We can't see you. What? And they're like, Give us a king. And Samuel's like, You got a king. His name is God. They're like, No, no, no. We don't want that kind of king. We want a real, live, fleshy king. We want a real life. We, we, we don't want to trust in that God. We want to trust in a God that we can actually get our hands around and, and a God that we can actually predict and a God that we can actually, you know, uh, maybe even, even control in some ways and, and speak into His life in some ways. Don't we do that with, with our lives in a lot of ways, guys? Let's just be honest with you. Before we go and in, in, in indicting these kinds of elders and these people, we, we do that with our own lives and we've got to be careful, don't we? But this is, this is what we do, and this is why Saul came into existence. And getting back to our point, what I'm trying to illustrate to you is that God's pursuit of man is stronger than man's pride towards God. Do you see man's pride in the elders here? Do you see man's pride in Saul's first distrust of God? Do you see man's pride in Saul's second distrust of God? Now go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I promise we're going to camp out here for a couple more minutes. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Do you see what Saul did? Since I have rejected him as king over... Look at the next sentence. Look at the next sentence with me. Listen to what God says to Samuel here. This is amazing. He says, stop mourning and fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Do you get the picture here? It's almost like God is saying, listen, my pursuit of you is bigger than your rejection of me. Isn't that an amazing truth? Just because... Just because Saul had rejected God and just because the elders of Israel had rejected God, that that did not cancel out God's pursuit of His people. Isn't that sweet? And in our lives, think about it. Make the application. Think about this. Just because... We reject God and, and, and at times keep Him at arm's length. God's pursuit of you and me is stronger than our rejection of Him. That's a, that's a God, isn't it? That's a God that I want to serve, guys. That's a God whose life I want to put, I want to put my life in His hands. I want to serve the kind of God that says, listen, you can reject me all you want. And you can, you can keep me at arm's distance. You can push back from me, but I will not stop pursuing you because I love you 
And I have a plan for you. And Israel, at this point, I have a plan for you. Samuel, get off the ground. Fill your horn with oil. Stop grieving and start going to Bethlehem. Because I still have a plan for you. And just because you've pushed me aside, and just because Saul rejected me as king, I'm still pursuing you. I'm still loving you. If you go, you can write this verse down. We don't have time to go there. But Psalm 107. Go read Psalm 107. What you're going to see over and over and over again is a people of God rebelling against God. And then they get so sick and tired of the position that they're in, they cry out to God and God rescues them. And then again, they, they, they push back to God and, and then they cry out to God and God rescues them again. In this whole psalm, over and over and over again, is God, is David praising God for the times that, that he pursues them, even in their disobedience. An amazing deal. Uh, look at that this week at times. Now, the second statement I want to give to you guys is this. God's pursuit of man isn't dependent on public image. God's pursuit of man is not dependent on public image. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, think about who David is. Think about who David is. He says, fill your horn with oil. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen him. And then verse 3 says, I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. And then, when, and then it goes on to, to describe exactly who, who Jesse, Jesse's sons are. Now, now put this in perspective here. Good looking tall, handsome, well-built Eliab. Now, ladies, that's a name that you like, isn't it? Eliab. Just stirs images of this Eliab. Right? He's the first up. And Jesse, David's daddy, starts this parade of men. And I imagine the song, It's Raining Men, is just playing in the backdrop. And they're parading. And here comes Eliab. And, and Samuel gets, a, gets, gets excited here. This is our guy. This is our king. What does what does the Lord tell Samuel? No, it's not the guy. All right, the next guy comes on the scene. Not a bad name either. Ready? Abinadab. More syllables than Eliab. Abinadab. If you don't have a pet name for your sweetheart. <laughs> Try that one on next time you're out and about. No longer honey or sweetie. You're now a Benadab. That's how we roll in our Dearman household. <laughs> yeah, right. He parades in front. Okay, Samuel, this is the guy. What does God say? All right, next guy up on the scene. Not as good of a name, but, you know, still pretty good. Shema. Shema. He parades on through, strutting his stuff. 
He's all consecrated before the Lord. God said, go consecrate your family, Jesse. So, you know, Eliab is consecrated and Abinadab is consecrated and Shammah. That just even sounds good, doesn't it? Shammah. You can put that nice Hebrew inflection on the end of that thing. Shammah parades and, okay. Nope. God says. And then all seven of Jesse's boys walk through. And Samuel's like, these aren't the guys. Did I not? Did I have some bad pizza last night? And did God say go to Jesse of Bethlehem or Jesse of Bethel? And he goes to Jesse and he says, Samuel to Jesse, did, do you got any more boys? Well, yeah, but he's like dirty and got nasty stuff all over him and he's, he's not even consecrated because he's out in the field tending to sheep and his name's David. I mean, David. That's not Eliab. I mean, you know, that's not Shema or Benedict. David is out in the field, but you don't want him. He's, he's the youngest. God steps in, puts it on Samuel and says, go get him. We will not sit down. We will not gather together until David gets here. Remember this point. God, God's pursuit of man is not dependent on public opinion. Isn't it good? Isn't it good, guys and girls, that God does not show favor and have favorites? Isn't it good? I love this passage of Scripture because I'm short. I'm not Eliab. <laughs> I really like this. God does not show favorites. Public opinion, who you are, the reputation that you have, the networking that you find yourself blessed with, the grades that you hold in school, the, the family members that have gone before you, the whatever is in your life, God is not impressed with any of that because God treats us all the same. Amen? And isn't that great news? And while the public and the culture may scream, you got to have this network in place, God screams, I made you. And I'm going to pursue you because I made you, not because who the public thinks you are. Not because you're Eliab. And actually the Bible says right here that the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at, but the Lord looks at the heart. We find this boy David being responsible. Isn't it interesting that that Jesse, uh, that, that Samuel told Jesse, consecrate your sons and have them come to this feast? And David is not even included. It would imply in the text in this consecration. He's nowhere to be found. The only thing that we know about David is that he is ruddy. Love that word. He's handsome, and he has a good heart. And God said, I've chosen my king. And my king is not the most popular person 
the most networked person, or even the person that anybody else would pick. My person that I have chosen to be king and to extend the line of the Messiah through, the promised one, the Savior of all nations through, is a forgotten boy. That blows my mind. If you feel forgotten this this evening, I was about to say this morning, don't. You are not forgotten. God's pursuit of you does not depend on anything but Him. Marinate on that. Live your life based on that. Not on what kind of job you're going to have and not on what kind of future that is at stake right now. Bank your life on what God thinks about you more than who anybody else thinks about you. Amen? Alright, last thing. Davidic covenant. Flip over to Second Samuel. We're going to end here. One book over. Second Samuel, if you're having a hard time finding it, is right after First Samuel. Just making sure you're with me. Second Samuel 7. It's at this point in time that we find David who is fully at rest. He has ascended to the throne. Saul has died. He is there. He has experienced military conquests. And the Bible says in this chapter, in chapter 7, verse 1, after the king David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. And the word of the Lord came to Nathan that night. And basically, I'm going to summarize this for you. David's heart... This, is a, this shows you David's heart. And he's saying, God, you have done so much for me. You have been with me in all these battles. You have rescued me from Saul's backstabbing. You have done amazing things for me, God. And I have this massive, massive palace. And you're living under a tent. Something's wrong with this picture. God, I want to do something for you. I want to bless you, God. Do you see David's heart here? David's heart is screaming, God, I want to do something for you. And then God turns it upside down and He says, No, David, you're not the one to build me a temple. I will have a temple built for me. But you're not the one to do it. Actually, your son, Solomon, is going to build my temple. You're not going to do it. Solomon's going to build my temple. But David, because your heart is so good, and because your heart is so set on me, and because you love me with everything in your life, David, instead of you doing something for me, let me do something for you. Isn't that amazing? And watch what God says to David. And this is illustrated in verse uh, 11 and 12. Look at verse 11 and 12. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish you. 
When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body. That's Solomon. And I will establish his kingdom. This is amazing. He is the one who will build my house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men and with the floggings inflicted by men. God is projecting there, listen, I'm going to establish your your line and your kingdom, David. Because of your heart, because of your, your passion for me, I'm going to establish your kingdom. But when Solomon sins, when all of the other people in your line sin, we know he's not talking about Jesus there, don't we? Because Jesus does not sin. He can't punish Jesus because Jesus is not punishable because Jesus never sins. He will be, in, he will be a, a punished with the rod of men, with the floggings inflicted by men. But listen to this. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Now this is the key sentence in the Davidic covenant, and this is the pursuit of God here. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. Here's the last deal. God's pursuit of man is fully realized in the promised king. God's pursuit of man is fully realized in the promised king. God is saying here to David, David, your kingdom is going to last forever. And I am going to establish your kingdom forever. Solomon's going to take the next baton and run with it. And if he sins, I'm going to discipline him. And the next guy is going to take the baton and run with it. And if he sins, I'm going to discipline him with it. And he goes on and on and on throughout the whole line of David. And here's the deal. At the end of it all is the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the promised, realized King of all kings. Amen? And He is from David's line that we see God pursuing His people in the most full extent, don't we? And I want you to flash forward at this point in time to our Christmas passages. And you're going to see this in Luke. You're going to see this right here in Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to read it for you. I think I've got it on the screen. Yeah. Watch this. You will be with child. Who's with child here at this point? Okay, good job. Not Joseph. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name? Yes. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne, what? Of his father, Abraham. I'm father. I'm just making sure you're with me. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. Now let me, just stay right there with me. Listen to this back in 2 Samuel. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. And your throne will be established what? Forever. Good. Same thing. And his kingdom will never end. Now look at one more. Go to the next slide, guys. Matthew. Christmas passage here. Remember, you're walking to the incarnation here around Christmas time. This is feeding right into that. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will... Who's the virgin? Okay, not Joseph. 
and will give birth to a son. For those of you who are struggling with that, I recommend you take anatomy. Um, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him what? Which means? All right, look at the pursuit of God here. Do you see the pursuit of God? God with us. Through the line of David. God and His pursuit of you and me is most fully realized in the person of Jesus Christ. And His promise to be with you, to pursue you passionately with Himself is so amazingly seen in the birth and in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see it? I want you to see it, guys, but here's the challenge. I want you to bank your life on this, and I want you to see more than anything else the continued theme of Scripture here that God is passionately pursuing people. And He's done that most evidently in the person of Jesus Christ. And this Davidic covenant has come true, hasn't it? And if you believe in Jesus Christ, God is with you. God is with you. And His pursuit with you is every day now. It's not just a once-in-a-lifetime deal. It's an everyday thing. It's an all-day, everyday reality. And He's pursuing you, and He's pursuing a people, and it just doesn't stop here. He's pursuing a people in Ethiopia right now with Matt. Amen? And He's pursuing a people in Africa. And He's pursuing a people in Asia. And He's pursuing people all over the face of the earth. Why? Because God's Word says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And surely, be consumed with this. I am with you. Same deal. Always. To the ends of the earth. And to the ends of the age. Is that not amazing? Take courage tonight, guys. God's pursuit of you is bigger than your pride. God's pursuit of you is bigger than what anybody thinks of you publicly. And God's pursuit of you is just rooted and realized most fully in the person of Jesus. Pray with me. Lord God, Your Word is incredible. It's thick. It's amazing. It's ridiculous at times that it's just so amazing. God, my prayer for these students, my prayer for myself and my family... My prayer for this ministry is that you would just consume us with your pursuit. Let us celebrate your pursuit, God. Let us live in the truth that you are pursuing us all the time. We love you, God. And as you pursue us, Father, my prayer is that we would respond to the pursuit. Let us not just sit in this, God. Let us act on this, God. Stir us to a deeper affection because you first loved us. We thank you for the Davidic covenant and we thank you for revealing to us this truth. God, I pray for any person out here who's struggling with this or who's sitting on the fence or who's new to the whole God-Jesus thing. Lord, would you please, by your grace, move them to that next spot where they begin asking more and more questions and begin just seeking you more and more through the amazing Word of God. And would you just come all over them, Father? God, we love you. And we give our lives for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.